Welcome back to In the Belly of the Beast. My name is Rye Sigelko, and I teach in the theology department here at the University of St. Thomas, and I'm joined with some of my friends. My name is Todd Lawrence, and I teach in the English department at the University of St. Thomas, and I also do American culture and difference. I'm one of the affiliated faculty. My name is Kanishka Chowdhury. I teach in the English department, and I direct the American culture and difference program. I'm Amy Finnegan. I teach in Justice and Peace Studies, and I'm also lucky enough to be an affiliated faculty with American Culture and Difference. So last time we discussed Kanishka's book that he's working on, and uh, before that we talked about Amy's work, and now today we're going to talk a bit about Todd Lawrence's book and uh, his current work. And I know you're on to some new things now with the George Floyd Project and Database, but I thought today we could talk about your book from 2018, entitled When They Blew the Levy, Race, Politics, and Community in Pinhook, Missouri, which was co-authored with Elaine Lalas and published with the University Press of Mississippi. The book I read today was awarded the Chicago Folklore Prize in 2019. Congratulations. Thank you very much. And yeah, the book is a really amazing, marvelous book. It, it focuses on the community uh, at Pinhook, whose homes and land was completely destroyed in 2011 when the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers activated the Birds Point New Madrid Floodway, one of the flood prevention mechanisms of the Mississippi Rivers and Tributaries Project. And this levee breach was intended to divert water in order to save the town nearby, Cairo, Illinois, but in the process completely destroyed a small African-American town of Pinhook, Missouri. And so I guess I'm hoping you'll talk a bit about what drew you to this project, a bit of background into the community of Pinhook and this this devastating event and how the community responded. Yeah, sure. Um, thanks for that introduction. And that's the kind of nuts and bolts of the of the story, but there's so much more to it. And I could probably talk for hours and hours about uh, the people of Pinhook. Elaine and I were, worked on this project for 10 years plus and uh, have gotten to know the people of Pinhook really well, and especially a small group of people, the Robinson family, we've gotten to know them really well. And uh, so that's been really important. There's really extraordinary people, but, um, but yeah, the, the project started really for me in 2012. We came to the project well after the breach had occurred and the destruction of the community had already happened. And uh, Elaine Lawless was my teacher when I was a graduate student at the University of Missouri. And um, we were friends and we had, you know, sort of worked together on stuff. And uh, she asked me actually at a, at a conference in the fall of 2012, she told me, hey, meet me in this coffee shop. I want to ask you about something. And I was like, all right, well, well, I'll meet you. And so we met at this coffee shop and she said, um, I just found out about this town in Southeast Missouri that was destroyed by the Armored Corps of Engineers. I don't understand how this happened. I also don't, like she was from that area and she's like, I'd never heard of this town. So I don't know why I never heard of it. And I, w- I just want to find out more. Do you want to help me? And I said, yeah, sure. And at that point, I mean, I don't think either one of us knew what the project was, what it would become. We were both from Missouri. I think we, you know, were thinking that, you know, she's from that area. Benton, I think is the name of the town that she's from. I'm from uh, mid-Missouri, from a, also a black town. My, my dad's family's from a black town called Pennytown in mid-Missouri. 
And so I think we both had interests that came from our you know, personal histories. But it really like once we went down there together and met people who had had this thing happen to them, that's when the project really came alive. You know, that's when it really was like animated. And we started to realize like what we wanted to do was to try to help the people of Pinhook. And, and I've written a lot about that desire and the sort of failure of that, you know, desire of wanting to help, of wanting to be an advocate. And I can talk about that a little bit too, but yeah, mainly, you know, we went down to Pinhook and we met a woman named Deborah Robinson and she was, you know, everyone sort of called her the mayor of Pinhook. And, uh, she is an extraordinary lady. And we, we basically cold called her with a phone number that we got off of uh, someone else's blog site. And she agreed to meet with us that day out at Pinhook. And um, she took us home to her house that night where the house where she was staying, which was her mother also stayed there and her sister. They each three of them each had their own houses at Pinhook, but they'd been destroyed. And they were now living in a house that was owned by their cousin and nephew in uh, Sexton, Missouri, which is about 15 miles away. So we went there and they started to tell stories and they started to talk to us. And I like scrambled to get my phone out to sort of start recording um, the stories that they were telling. And, and we realized like they were telling stories about what had happened to them, the disaster, which was extraordinary in and of itself. But they also started to talk about the town and what it was like to live there and what the community was like and the kind of people, like the relationship that they have with each other, the way that they cared for each other. It was a pretty much an all-black town. There were a couple, you know, white people that lived in the area and there was um, in particular one, one white woman who was a part of their community who was a teacher. But in large part, and historically speaking, it was a black town that started in the early 1940s when Five men, sharecroppers, came from Tennessee to try to start a place where they could have a community and they could make a living and they could be free of, you know, the kind of treatment that they were, you know, getting in other parts of the country. And they did that, you know. So, and then in 2011, this happened to them. So, um, yeah, that's, that's basically it. We, the two of us started working on this. I'm in Minnesota. Um, she was in Columbia, Missouri. Columbia, Missouri is four hours away from Pinhook. I mean, the Twin Cities is like, what, another eight hours away from her or something. So, you know, when we were doing field work, my parents live in Kansas City. So I would drive first to Kansas City. I would stay the night there. And then I would get up really early and drive to Columbia and pick Elaine up. And then we would drive four more hours down to the Boot Hill is what they call it. And uh, we would, you know, meet with people. We would sometimes we went for events. Sometimes we just went to spend time with people and talk to them and hear their stories. And we did that a lot over the next couple of years and really learned the story, not just of a disaster, but of a community and of a community response to disaster, which might be the most inspiring part of it all. I think one of the things that really strikes me as he was speaking is that this is really about a story of a community, a story of a group of people. And so much of the violence in this country that has been done was, you know, in terms of bloodshed and taking away of land, but also of the uh, destruction of historical memory, right? And of course, that's evident in the way Indigenous people have responded to their loss. And this goes back to Amy's episode as well. Uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what it means to hear these stories 
and what it then means for you and us as scholars to represent or try to tell these stories. And I know you, as an ethnographer, have thought deeply about this question. And, and again, you could talk about this for hours. But I, I just want you to share a little bit with our audience about both the challenges and rewards of both hearing these stories, but then representing and having the responsibility, frankly, you know, of representing these stories. And for the four of us, you know, we are constantly talking about the belly of the beast. How do you represent stories in an authentic way within a publishing system, a system of scholarship, of institutions and universities, and do it in a way that does justice to the people who don't have access to those things and who have historically represented them in particular ways and very, very problematic ways. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a great question. And uh, I mean, my initial thought on how to answer that is that you don't, like you can't. And that's a short way of saying that it's extremely complicated, right? Like if we think about the history of ethnography and other qualitative research methods, it's not good, right? I mean, and there's there's a, a lot of problems with how people have approached it in the past. And only in recent years have researchers really started to think about, you know, maybe like the late 70s and, and into the 80s when they really started to rethink um, how to approach this kind of work. And uh, there have been a lot of different approaches, you know, reflexive approaches, um, feminist and indigenous uh, research approaches, I think, that have really tried to, in some ways, level the power differential between the researcher and the and the people who end up being like the object of the research. And we've even changed, you know, we change our terminology. Like I'm a folklorist. So in, you know, in folklore studies, we they used to say, um, you know, your subjects or something like that. And, and now we say sometimes our partners, our collaborators as a way to try to sort of indicate that we're working with people and not on them. People used to say that too, like you would ask a folklorist, what do you do? And they would say like, I work on the Paiute or whatever. And so that was always sort of a like off-putting way of talking about what really is a relationship between you and a, and a group of people and their, their lives and their, you know, their culture. There's problems as well with representation, right? I mean, representation is always inadequate. If we think about it in the sense of I mean, Stuart Hall sort of says that um, representation is not that thing which stands in for the real thing, right? But I think when we talk about writing or making a film or whatever it is that you're trying to do to help to tell someone's story or to describe the way that they live or their set of beliefs or whatever it is, it's always going to be inadequate to really sort of convey that, right? When it comes to the relationships that you form with people that you're supposedly working in collaboration with, which is, as I said before, is always the, the objective, you really begin to realize that even those relationships which seem to be real and genuine are in some ways troubled and, and fraught, right? And I would tell you right now, for example, that I consider Deborah Robinson to be my friend. And I still talk to her on the phone, not as often as we used to, but I call her every once in a while and she'll call me every once in a while. And we're friends. Um, she would even say, and she's told me this, your family. And I believe that. One part of me believes that. Another part of me also acknowledges that we live, you know, hundreds of miles away from each other, both in distance. And we also sort of live hundreds of miles away from each other in terms of our lives and our experiences. And, you know, I'm an academic and 
there's just so many ways that our lives are separate from each other. She's never met my partner, for example. I know so much about her, but she knows much less about me, I guess is a way of saying it. And I think, you know, if you told, if she was sitting here, she would say that doesn't matter. I would say that it does. And for me as a researcher to deny that is to sort of be blind to something that is a reality. So, I mean, all of these aspects of the research that we do and the work that we do, I mean, even I didn't even talk about, you know, advocacy, right? Like that was something that Elaine and I thought from the very beginning is we can help, you know, the, the thing that you referenced, Kanishka. We know people and we know how to publish and we know how to bring attention to something and blah, blah, blah. blah. We thought we could do something for them that wasn't happening. And uh, it was not really true. We came to understand eventually that they were doing their own advocacy. They were av- advocating for themselves in ways they knew how. And, and in a lot of ways, their own advocacy was more effective than ours was. I'm basically getting to the point of saying that all of this, to me, was a failure. And this is something I've been thinking a lot about and been talking a lot about with regard to ethnography, that ethnography is ultimately a failure in almost every way that you try to do it or that you try to think about how we do it, that we fail. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. There's a book called The Queer Art of Failure, Jack Halberstam's book on The Queer Art of Failure, which I really love, which sort of like raises up the notion of failure not as a negative thing or a non-productive thing, but it basically sort of juxtaposes it or compares it to ways of thinking about productivity and success as essentially masculinist and, and a result of capitalism, right? Like the, the product of capitalism. And that there are some ways in which failure is easier, failure can still be productive, and failure can be a, a good thing, right? Um, for me, I acknowledge that our project has been in many ways a failure, but I would not not do it. <laughs> I would go back and do it again. Some of the ways that it has changed my life and affected me is that it has allowed me to have a relationship with a group of people who are extremely amazing, extraordinary people who I wouldn't have met otherwise, right? It's made me rethink concepts like home and and connectedness to the land, something which I didn't really give much attention to before I started this project. I didn't really understand what it would mean for people to be attached to a place in such a profound way as these folks were and still are, you know? So, um, yeah, I mean, I can talk more about this. I don't want to talk too much to answer that question, but the answer to your question is there are things that we can do and there are things that are necessary for the research and there are things that we should be trying to accomplish, but we should also be open to the fact that they will fail and that we will try them and they won't work and we should try them again and they won't work. And we should try to connect with people and it won't work. And we should be honest with people and we won't be being honest. <laughs> and all of these things, you know what I'm saying? And that doesn't mean that you don't do the work. It just means that you have to recognize that that's a necessary part of the work. And we shouldn't think about it as doing things that it doesn't do. I like that. I like the idea of productive failure. And I think it, all of us have sort of bristled at the idea that when we apply for grants and projects and we have to write all these things about this is what I'm going to accomplish. And this very kind of mechanical view of knowledge that that has to have a product. And so I, I'm glad you're pushing back against that and, and problematizing how knowledge is acquired. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say like the book, you know, Rice holding a copy of the book in his hand and like, I'm super proud of the book. 
it was a great experience to write the book and like everything that went into that. But I can't honestly sit here and tell you that that book has materially changed the lives of people from Pinhook. I don't even know if anybody from Pinhook has read that book. We sent copies of the book. We brought copies of the book with us sometimes. And I especially remember that when we got the first, you know, sort of copy of the book before it actually went to press, we were on our way to Pinhook Day, which is the annual homecoming that they have in Pinhook and um, on Memorial Day weekend. And we had this one copy and we took this copy and we brought it to Pinhook with us. And everybody who came to Pinhook that weekend signed that book. And then we gave it to Deborah. We were like, Deborah, just keep this, you know. I don't know if Deborah read that book or not. <laughs> I honestly don't care because that's not what it was about. I mean, like she lived the story. I was trained and Elaine is a proponent of what's called reciprocal ethnography. And reciprocal ethnography is where you, when you're doing ethnography, you sort of, um, you go do your field work and then you get this data and then maybe you write and sort of come to some conclusions and then you give it back to the people that you've been working with and you sort of say, what do you think? And then not only do you get their response, but like you allow them to like write into your text, right? Like, so you say, okay, well, write what you think, write your response. And then that gets incorporated into the text. And so we were going to try doing this, right? I mean, she's written a couple of books that use that, that approach. And um, we would send a chapter or like, a, at first, I think, I think we sent a chapter to Deborah and her sister Tuan. And, and um, I'd be like, hey, can you read this chapter and, and tell me what you think? And they'd be like, oh, okay. All right. <laughs> and then it'd be like, a, you know, a month or two months. And I'd be like, hey, Deb, like, um, did you get to that chapter? And she's like, I have to work, Todd. Like, I'm, and I realized, like, they just didn't have time for this. They didn't have time for it. It wasn't like an, important to them. Mm. And um, so we didn't do it anymore. And then later, I remember asking Elaine. I was like, Elaine, are we? We're not doing reciprocal ethnography. Like, what are we doing? Is this at all kind of like you know, or, or sort of reflexive or even feminist kind of um, approach? She said, okay, so we're not doing it, you know, the way that I described it or the way that I sort of theorized it, but everything that's in this book is from them. All the knowledge that we think that we came to ourselves came from them. And she's like, we just have to like acknowledge as much as possible in the book that this is from these people. Like maybe we're, I don't even like to think of myself as like the intermediary between their story and anyone who reads that book, obviously I am, obviously we are, we wrote it. We chose what stories to tell and what stories not to tell. But at the same time, like there's a way that the book is not their story. It's our story. And like, we have to acknowledge that. Right. And that now when I certainly for a period of time, when I would go out and um, give a talk about Pinhook or anything, I would want, I would want Deb to come with me or I want Tuan to come with me or their mother or anybody who would come with me and tell their own story because they realize I'm not really telling their story. I'm telling a story about us going and encountering this place and these folks and then what they taught us, what we learned from them when we were there. It's really our story. It isn't even what it proclaims to be. And so we had to like not proclaim that it was what it isn't, which is hard because what is the press? The press wants an ethnography. The press wants they want to market it like, you know, this is the story of these people. They want in some ways to, and I shouldn't say that because the University of Mississippi Press has been really cool and they haven't insisted on anything we didn't want to. But I think there is sort of like this tendency to want to focus on disaster and to focus on the tragedy. And um, 
that's not really the story. I mean, I actually am more, um, I mean, I'm proud of the book, but I'm actually, I like some stuff that I wrote after the book was over, which was really about me learning what was really important, like how people were processing what had happened to them that was different from what I thought had happened. <laughs> it's like for me to be able to say to like Tuan, who was basically saying after this had all happened that it's over, I'm going to move on. We have new houses and we're going to move on. And me saying like, no you still got screwed. You know, this is wrong. And I, she actually said this to me. She, I was like, in the book, we say, and she's like, that's your book, Todd. That's your book. You can say what you want to. And then she turned around and walk away. <laughs> and mm. so, yeah. So like understanding that to me is like really important and it's an important part of the process. Can I ask you to go back a little bit just to tell us kind of what happened? I mean, I, I love this sort of image of you you know, just going down there. I mean, you and Elaine are both from Missouri. So there's probably already kind of a connection or like a, you know, sense of this is kind of, this is home in a sense. Certainly for Elaine. Yeah. You meet with Deborah. She welcomes you in. Mm -hmm. And what's it like? So it's been at this point, it had been about a year. She's living away from the area. I mean, the book draws right together or draws two kind of narratives, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It draws up two narratives. So there's a narrative that's the official narrative of what happened told by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, told by what the township or, or the state of Missouri, or I don't know who was telling that story, but there's the official story. And then there's the story that you heard mm -hmm. from Deborah. And I wonder if you could share a bit about these, these two stories, this mm -hmm. duality. Like what happened? And I realize that's a complex yeah. question, right? I mean, I guess that's, there are two stories here. And how did Deborah describe that story when you first met with her? Yeah, so we go, Elaine and I drive down we have only, I think, you know, we have a couple of newspaper articles or something like that. And that's how Elaine found out about this. She was visiting her mom at home and she picked up the newspaper and uh, there was a story about Pinhook in it. And um, so anyway, we go down with very little information and we call Deborah and Deborah agrees to meet us at Pinhook, which is, you know, a ruin. Um, I would say it was like March of 2012. So it's not quite a year, but it's close to a year. So there's a water. There's just houses there that are knocked off of their foundation that are cracked in half that are just like falling apart there's cars that have been submerged in water there's the what's left of their church which is the walls are all knocked down it's been you could see that it's recently burned as well so i mean it's 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 a ruin right and so she meets us out there and we start to walk around and this is like this was a town. It, technically, it's a village because in the state of Missouri, if it's if a town is less than 500 citizens, it's incorporated as a village. So this was a village. So it's like between 50 and 100 residents. But it has it has streets, paved streets and street signs. And, you know, like it's a town. And so we're walking around the ruins of this town. And Deborah's pointing to like, there's where, you know, Mr. George lived. And there's where my mom used to live there. And there's where my auntie lived. And like all just pointing out these places. And we're just like, holy cow. And I had a video camera with me that I pulled out and started to video. You have the documentary too, right? Yeah, yeah, we did it. We did a documentary and that's on, that's on YouTube. I think it's called Taking Pinhook. There are incredible images here uh, in the book of, of the homes of the people yeah. There's this map here. And in that, that moment, we're walking down the street and I'm videotaping and Elaine asks Deborah, you know, like, I think she says, uh, were you able to save anything, you know, uh, pictures or anything like that? And Deborah says, I did good to get myself out. You know, um, we didn't have 
really any uh, notification. And wow. and then Elaine asked, like, did anyone help you or did anyone like notify you or help you to get people out? And she said, no. And then Elaine says, like, oh, my God. And that's in the that's the, that's the first time we met Deborah. And that's in the that's in the film. And of course, we talk about it in the book. But like that was my introduction to this situation is like these folks had had their their whole town destroyed, their lives just really dismantled. And nobody, nobody said anything. Nobody helped them. Nobody came with trucks to help them move. They had to get their own trucks. They couldn't. They had trouble getting trucks. They ended up basically like the images. We have some um, photos. I think there might be one in the book at the beginning, but I don't know if it has uh, the trucks, but there's like people walking on a street and um, basically they had to use uh, tractors and trucks pulling trailers to get whatever they could out and they basically had less than one day to remove their their possessions before the roads flooded and they couldn't get back in and even at this point they hadn't been notified in an effective way by the local authorities or anyone that this uh, levy was going to get breached what the what they called operating the project and uh, so they were gone they were out of there every person was out but they had to leave. Where'd they go? They just went to friend's house, family? Yeah, they went where they could. It was like a diaspora. Like, they went wherever they could. And um, their stuff was still in there. There were cars left in there. It's like, I, I mean, I didn't. I never went to a house in, you know, in New Orleans after Katrina. But it's like what I imagined that would look like if you walked into a house, which we did, you know, walked into a house. There were, there were still pictures on the walls. There were diplomas. There were clothes hanging in the closets. There was, you know, blankets folded up in the corners, you know, well, not folded, but like in the corners, you know, there was all this stuff. There were, you know, photo albums, et cetera, just like strewn everywhere because the houses had been submerged for two weeks under 25 feet of water, but the stuff was still in the houses, you know? So that was like, it was extraordinary. And I think, you know, again, to me, the most extraordinary part of it was after we had talked to her and she told us all this, she said, can you give me a ride home? And we said, yeah. And she, we took her back to Sykeston where she was staying and she was like, come in and have dinner. And we were like, oh, um, okay. And she's like, come in. And she's like, let me call my brother. And she called all these people and they all came over and they started to talk about what had happened. And they said, you guys are staying here tonight. And I was like, well, we have a, we have a, a hotel. Like we, we, no, no, you're staying here. Like they, they just immediately took us in. You became family. Yeah. And I didn't know it at that moment. But later, I mean, that's basically what she told me. It was like, at that moment, we, well, she said we treat everyone like family. And then what really makes you family is, do you come back? And we did that. You know, we came back again and again. I mean, there was no difference between, I think she would treat any reporter from, you know, some newspaper that way, because that's the kind of people they were. But those people didn't come back. And we came back and we came back again and again. And that's maybe what made us family in her mind. And we cared, you know, I, I will always, you know, insist on that. Like I cared what was happening to them. And so for all those years, we went through this with them. Like she did all kinds of like filled out all kinds of these applications and paperworks and everything, trying to get some kind of financial help for them because they didn't get anything from the federal government, not from FEMA. You know, like how when, you know, a hurricane or a flood or whatever, that they come in and they give you like relocation money and they, you know, all this, they, they got nothing. So what was the official story or the official, yeah, like how, how, did, they, how did they justify this? Well, so 
The town is located, was located inside of a floodway, the Birds Point New Madrid floodway, which is one of a number of like flood mitigation things along the Mississippi River, part of the Mississippi River and Tributaries Project. And um, it's got, you know, a frontside levee and a backside levee, and it's designed to divert water from the main channel. So how they operate it would be they would blow a two-mile hole in the frontside levee and let all this water from the river run through it. It had only ever been done in 1937 was the last time it was done. And the, that was before people from Pinhook even lived there. They came in the early 1940s. The government had purchased easements on the land from previous owners that basically said they could flood that land whenever they wanted to. And there was, there's no, nothing that can be done. No, no remuneration was required. And so when they blew that levy, they were basically operating the project they were acting according to a list of procedures that were part of, you know, historically were about saving the town of Cairo across the river, um, which at the time that this whole sort of thing was set up was um, a really rich and wealthy town. You know, it's called the gateway to the south and all this kind of stuff. It, it's a very wealthy place. Um, in uh, 2011, it wasn't, but in, in 1927, it was. And in 1930 you know, or whatever. Anyway, so that water came through. It's like, a, I don't know, 100, uh, it's 130 acres is a floodway. And the water comes through at like 500,000 cubic feet per second of water or something, which is like a massive amount of water, a massive amount of force, and filled that whole floodway up. So when they were going and saying, like, we need help, it was basically like, well, that wasn't a disaster. We just did what the procedure said we were supposed to do. FEMA doesn't pay you money for God's will, right? Right, right. I mean, the, the flood itself, you know, but like it's really a, it was a man-made disaster for them because it was something designed to happen. And, and you know, you can't, you can't sue the federal government. The Army Corps of Engineers, like we, we actually went and, and interviewed. This is the one interview we did of someone who wasn't a pinhook person because we realized kind of early on we didn't really care what the Army Corps of Engineers had to say. I mean, we had their official kind of the um, divine providence text, right? So we had their official story, but we didn't really care about going and interviewing them because I didn't really care about what they were going to say. They already said it. So that text was already written, that divine providence text. Well, it was probably written in 2014, I think. Okay, this is a text that I was just picking up to read before we were started recording, which is, is this basically like the official story yeah. and it's titled the title of the text is divine providence and they're quoting a general general jadwin yeah from 1928 who wrote in the wake of the 1927 the great mississippi river flood of 1927 when they rebuilt the levee mm-hmm. well they were building it for the first time yeah but it's really the language of settler colonialism, right? I mean, mm. it's amazing that we're still using that whole idea that this land is somehow given mm-hmm. to settlers to do what they will. Mm-hmm. Manifest destiny. Yeah, exactly. So the same text is just being written over and over again. But the idea of that was that it would be, in order for the levy to blow, it would have to be something like an act of God. Yeah. They have a technical term for it. It's called a project design flood. They had um, models for, uh, I think it's a thousand year floods. So they had the three, the last three thousand year floods, which they put together, which was called the project design flood. And it was considered to be like the flood that, that could almost never happen. Right. Right. So you design a levee system 
that will hold back that, right? And basically that'll never happen. So you're good. So it's only the flood that is like God's hand basically put on the earth. Which just removes any kind of human responsibility. Right, right. And also ignores social preconditions that, that were already there. Mm-hmm. You know, people would ask them, why, why'd you live in a floodway? Well, because that's the only place black people could buy land, right? Right. It makes me think of Ruth Wilson Gilmore asked the question, um, why do things happen where they do? Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about that when I was learning about this project and thinking, yeah, I'm curious what, if you have more to say about that. Because you also talked about, and another piece related to that, I was thinking you were talking about how folks there, Deborah and others, have a strong connection to the land and to the space. So what does that mean? That this, Like the place-based dimension of this. Yeah. yeah. If I might add one yeah. thing to Amy's sure. point, and that is, I was thinking of Cheryl Harris, who says a very similar thing in Whiteness is Property, which is that property is not a thing. It's a set of social relations, right? It's practices and the rituals that come to be. We tend to think of property as this house or this, you know, this fence around a yard or whatever. And it seems to me, you know, that's exactly what you're saying in terms of Gilmore's point mm-hmm. about where and why does it happen? And, and you quote Lipsitz, right? Mm-hmm. In mm-hmm. the beginning of your uh, other piece. Mm-hmm. On it takes places yeah. for racism to take place. Right, right. Yeah, that um, like place is a way through which like these inequalities manifest themselves, right? That's certainly the case, the thing that happened here. It wasn't illegal in the early 1940s for a white person to sell land to a black person. But in practice, it was not done in this part of the state. And so the only land that was available to them was this land that nobody wanted. So it's a precarious space, right? Like they buy this land for inflated price inside of a floodway, probably knowing, but maybe not knowing that it could be flooded at any time. And certainly in practice, like in their experience over the, the period of time that they were, that they lived there, there was flooding, but it was never flooded purposefully, right? So there was always flooding. Um, Deborah's uh, grandfather fought and fought and fought. So on the south end of the floodway, it's open and it's to let they, it, it lets water back in. So it's to let water out when they operate the floodway and then, but it also lets water in. And so they would get flooding every year from that, that end of the floodway called backwater flooding. And he fought for a long time to try to get them to close and they wouldn't do it. And actually they just did it like a few years ago, actually during the Trump administration, they actually um, closed that part of the the levy, which is another interesting story. But, but yeah, uh, yeah. So why they were there is not just, you know, some coincidence or like something without a reason. I think, you know, for them, that place became so important because, you know, everything about who they were, they had kind of like, it had happened there. It wasn't just like the land, like the land's beautiful or something like that. Nah, you know, it's just like another piece of land. But they'd all lived there, grown up there. They had houses there. They had a church there. They, they had traditions, you know, everything was there. And um, I witnessed something like, so the, the part of the story that's not in our book is that in 2018, they actually did build some new houses. So uh, Mennonite Disaster Services, they found out about this story and uh, they came, helped Deborah to get a community development block grant um, along with Catholic um, Services in, of Southeast Missouri. So they got this money and it wasn't enough to buy land and to build new houses. So they needed volunteer labor. 
And so Mennonite Disaster Services comes in and they get some Amish workers from Ohio and oh, yeah. bust them in. Or, <laughs> and they come in. in got to bust them in. Yeah, they didn't drive themselves. And in 10 weeks, they built um, nine new houses in Sykeston. So they're in, there's two houses that are in different towns, but there's seven houses that are together in Sykeston. This is not everybody who lost their house. This is a few people who sort of stayed along for eight years, still fighting. And this is what they got. And uh, so Jeff, I think his name is Jeff Kohler, Mm -hmm. who um, is is the, at the time, was the director of Mennonite Disaster Services uh, west of the Mississippi River, I think. And um, so he was in charge of building the houses. He was the project uh, manager and all that. And um, they built the houses. And then what he also did was he, as a surprise, he built a picnic shelter at Pinhook. Like, there's no houses at Pinhook anymore. They couldn't build any new houses at Pinhook. Couldn't build a habitable structure. But he, he built a, a picnic shelter. It's like 20 feet by uh, 60 feet. So it's pretty big. So that when they have Pinhook Day, they could have something out there. And so in 2018 was the first Pinhook Day where they had it out, part of it out at Pinhook. And so we were all there and they were frying fish and they were like, it was amazing. It was great. I mean, Pinhook Day is always amazing. And um, Jeff was kind of like presenting, like, here you go. Uh, and he's, I heard him say to Deborah, I will come back because it doesn't have a floor. And he said, I'll come back and we'll pour concrete and we'll get you a floor for this. Because right now it's just like, you know, um, just pole barn kind of thing with sides and a roof. And she said, no, no, I don't want a floor. She said, I want to take my shoes off and put my feet in the ground. That's what I want. Wow. So I don't ever want a floor. I love that. And he said, okay. And that was it, you know? So, I mean, that's an example of how much that place, you know, meant to her. And the fact that it had sort of been denied to them because they couldn't rebuild their houses there, but they had this thing and they could go right. back there and they could experience that, you know, rootedness. You well, know? that's part of our wild connection. I mean, I first got to know you kind of through this a little bit because I was reading the book and I knew about the story and then... Yeah, I was a Mennonite pastor, and one year we had Mennonite Disaster Services, their like regional meeting at our church, and I was really excited about this, <laughs> which is kind of nerdy, but I was excited about it because of Pinhook, and the story of Pinhook, and the work that they do, which is basically rebuilding after disasters. Mm-hmm. And they show up, and I was asked to uh, open with a prayer, and Jeff was there, and I talked to him about your book. And he's like, oh yeah, Todd. Yeah, I love Todd. And, <laughs> and uh, a lot of Amish people were there and I opened with a prayer and then I, I, I shared about, you know, Pinhook and just, I, it was, it was a cool connection for me to make mm-hmm. um, with your work with the community in Pinhook. And I mean, it's a, it's a cool part of the story. I mean, I think there's still a tension there, right? Whether or not they, I mean, they didn't really get justice, recognized yeah, yeah. injustice in the mm-hmm. way that they they, they deserve and still deserve. Mm-hmm. And yet we saw various communities coming together, right? And the way mm-hmm. that this kind of... Yeah, you know, like there's this interesting thing, a connection between this relationship that developed between the women of Pinhook and the Amish workers, you know, like Deborah told me this amazing story about how, so the Amish workers were staying at this kind of like a church camp outside of town. And uh, the women of Pinhook would like go out there on Friday nights at the end of the week and they would bring a bunch of food and have a big feast, you know, for them as kind of thanks. And so one night they were out there and, um, pinhook people like seem to always burst into song at any point in time. They're really great singers and everything. And they started singing some spiritual and, uh, the Amish people were like, Oh, we, we know that one. And, 
<laughs> and so so they were like, oh, we'll sing it. And then they started singing in German. And oh, wow. uh, and so they were like, they sang together. They sang the same song, but the Amish in mm-hmm. German and the, and the women singing in English. And like somehow this was like this connection between them. And so w- when Deborah, Twan, or any of them talk about those Amish people, in fact, um, in an article, I think it's in an article that's not yet published that I wrote, but she talks about watching TV one night and seeing like some Amish people on TV and thinking like, are those the Amish people that built my house? You know, like she just had a lot of respect for their faith and their belief and just like, yeah, what they brought to that project and their generosity. And, we, you know, the piece that I sent to you guys has the, uh, pictures of them, um, which is pretty, pretty cool too. So they gave their permission to be photographed for that piece. So. I was going to say, I feel, I don't know, I have a couple, a thought that comes to mind is just about um, care. Mm-hmm. And I was struck about you talking about, you know, your ethnography and then the critique of ethnography. And then also, but like how this relationships develop with you and Elaine and, and the community. And I was thinking about how that just has a lot to say about like how you and Elaine show up as humans, as mm-hmm. people, as living mm-hmm. <laughs> beings and not in your professional spaces. Mm-hmm. But like my sense is that invitation to stay for dinner and spend the night came from the authentic spirit of care that was, that was real. Yeah. Um, And that maybe that also happened between the Amish women and Mm -hmm. and the women of Pinhook, which is like really beautiful. Yeah. I don't know. I'm touched. I was curious too, because I also know when you were reflecting afterwards on the, after the Amish houses were built, you were also like, you all had some different philosophies yeah, about where, yeah. like how religion helped you understand what was happening and how to move forward. Right. I don't know. I'm curious, like oh, you hold yeah. that care, but then still have different differences. Well, I mean, on the care part, I, I yes, absolutely. And that's like all we have. Uh, like one of my other teachers, Anand Prahlad, when I was in grad school, <laughs> he, he came back from a, a fieldwork project and I was talking to him and he was like, I'm never doing fieldwork and ethnography again. It's, it's 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 exploitative and blah blah blah. And he said all this stuff, and I was like, oh. And meanwhile, I was in a class, you know, with Elaine at the time, who was like saying, "Yes, we can do this." And so, like my whole career, like these two have been on each one of my shoulders, right? And recently, I was on a panel with Perlad, and uh, he actually was saying like he was being saying like how much he appreciated our work, and he said, you know, as an ethnographer, the only thing you have to bring is the gift of your presence. And essentially like to be there and listen to people. And uh, I was really struck by that, you know, that that is like, I, I can't fix anything. I really, I, I mean, allyship, it's fraught, you know, R- real relationship, it's fraught, you know, but I can be there and I can listen and I can be present. And that's all I can do, you know, like, and that's enough. That's enough, you know. So for me, that's really an important part of how I think about myself as an ethnographer is to just be present and listen. And maybe something will come of that. Maybe not the thing that we think, but maybe something will come of that. You said that on the very first day we got together that ethnography was deep listening. Mm, yeah. I, that's really stuck with me. That's yeah, beautiful. Yeah, like radical listening. Deep radical listening, listening yeah. maybe that's what you said. Yeah. Sorry. Both of those, no, both of those. <laughs> I'll just say one thing to respond to what... Um, what Rai was asking me about in the end, I mean, it's not over, but you know, at, at the end of the, of this whole thing, they got some houses and they're nice houses. I mean, they're the kind of houses that Mennonite disaster services build for everybody. They built the same house 
whether you're a rich person, you lost your house or you're a poor person, lost your house, they built the same house. You can have the door on one side or another. You can have the configuration inside a little, you can have two bedrooms, you can have one, whatever, but it's basically the same house, right? So they all have the same house and they're thankful. And they talked about it as if we have been tested and we have proved ourselves faithful and now we have our double portion. I mean, like that's basically the way they talked about it. It was like this whole thing about faith and remaining faithful and how you get rewarded if you remain faithful through a trial like this. And of course I said to Tuan, I said, as I said before, I was like, Tuan, like, I can't, I can't accept that. Like you, this is not justice. I mean, all these people, newspaper uh, reporters and everyone were there at the dedication of those houses. And what was the question that they were asking Pinhook people? Aren't you thankful that you got these houses? And I thought, why should they be thankful for getting something that's not what they deserve? And you want them to perform a kind of gratitude for something. Why? Right. And so I was really angry about this. I wasn't there, but I heard about it from Elaine who was there. And then later I talked about it with them and we were angry and, and I was really expressing that to Tuan in that moment. I was like, Tuan, I can't accept this. In the book, we say you've been treated unjustly. I will still continue to say you've been treated unjustly. And she kind of looked like at me like, you know, like a parent looks at a child when you're like, you're <laughs> trying to explain something to them. They're not getting it. And she was just sort of like, that's okay, Todd. That's okay. You, you can believe what you want and I have what I want to believe. And that was it. You know, that was it. I just want to read a, a little bit from the book here. This is in the conclusion, but you say, Deborah Robinson Tarver claims she has the best lawyer anyone could possibly have, and there is no way to pay him except to trust that by standing together, the pinhook community will prevail. Deborah has relied on the strength of her community and her belief in God to right the wrongs that have been perpetrated against her people, and she has been consistent in her belief that truth and justice will prevail. Her generosity of spirit has prevented her from bitterness and public recriminations. Indeed, no other than Dr. Martin Luther King noted that his, quote, adversaries expected him to harden into a grim and desperate man. When that did not happen, he identified the opposition's failure as its inability to perceive the sense of affirmation generated by the challenge of embracing struggle and surmounting obstacles. Seen in this light, the struggle of the Pinhook community has been both courageous and victorious, at least to a point. And it continues to be a struggle based on hope and confidence, strength and passion, largely because they have relied on community. They have rallied in the face of terrible odds. They have faced down powerful cultural and governmental institutions without rancor. And they've relied on their faith in each other and their faith in God to get them through. It's beautiful. That's, I love the way that's written. I Did love. We write that. <laughs> I feel like that was a you know a, a good kind of. Um, it gives us a picture as to kind of the kind of people that you met at Pinhook, the kind of people that they are, their generosity. They're not like any people I've ever met before. Well, maybe the reason why they didn't respond to you, you know, like when you sent them drafts and you wanted their approval and you wanted this reciprocal, you know, ethnography. Maybe they were just like, well, you know what, we love you, your family, we trust you. That's what she said that and to I me. I care more yeah. about you than I do about your damn book. Yeah, <laughs> she actually said that. No, I think that's absolutely right. I think that's well, right. I think um, you know, I think that's a really, really beautiful statement. But I think we also need to keep in mind that globally there's a battle going on, mm -hmm. a battle against big dams, 
battle against these kinds of enforced displacement, whether it's in Brazil or India or China. And certainly here in this continent, it's been happening forever. I mean, one of the biggest uh, dam blockages of the Missouri River was in when the uh, Cheyenne and the uh, Standing Rock reservations were flooded, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. after the war. So I think resistance comes in many shapes. But I think that if there wasn't this sort of global worldwide struggle against these kinds of forced displacements, you know, we would be in a, in a much more different place. So we owe it to everybody who in their own way have struggled, fought back, are continuing to do so. Mm-hmm. Even yesterday I saw somebody in, was it Bolivia, an uh, uh, environmental activist had just been murdered for speaking out against some kind of environmental policies. So, you know, it's a battle that's going on as we speak. Mm-hmm. And Pinhook is part of this. If I can say, you know, Pinhook is not the only story, right? Like, that's what you're saying, right? And every time, every time I've talked about Pinhook, given a talk somewhere about Pinhook, someone came up to me and said, did you hear about this town that got destroyed like that? Mm. And it's, it's, there's a whole history of destroying places of land dispossession, like you're, like Kanishka's talking about, not just in this country, but around the world. And so, I mean, that's why I think it's important to acknowledge the kind of story and the experience that Pinhook folks are, are having and, and sort of are expressing, but also to not let the anger go because, you know, it's the anger, it's the refusal to accept these things that drives us to continue fighting this kind of treatment of people, right? right. As we saw from the water protectors that Amy talked about, yeah. right? And Upstream. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for sharing yeah, with us, Tom. Um, and I encourage all of our listeners to pick up a copy of When They Blew the Levee and uh, Google uh, When They Blew the Levee, right, for the documentary. Uh, Taking Pinhook, it's called. Taking Pinhook. It's a fantastic documentary, about 20 minutes long mm-hmm. or 30 minutes long. 26 minutes. Exactly, 26 minutes long. <laughs> and yeah, learn from the community. Learn from, from this witness. Learn from um, this experience. So, you know, as we continue to struggle yeah, against displacement, against dispossession, against the refusal to take responsibility and our struggle to, to share our stories of resistance. Thanks, listeners. You've been listening to In the Belly of the Beast. We will see you next time.